Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine. I'm Chris Marshall and on this edition of the podcast, we'll continue to look at the unfolding situation in Afghanistan. Mandy Rhodes speaks to Yvonne Ridley, who was taken hostage by the Taliban while working as a journalist in the country shortly after 9-11. First, I'm joined by journalists Margaret Taylor and Jack Thompson to talk about what's been happening in the world of Scottish politics. And Margaret, we've had further details of the deal between the Greens and the SNP this morning. We have, yeah, yeah, the the not quite coalition cooperation agreement, whatever it is <laughs> being termed. Um, as part of that last week, it was kind of made known that Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater would be given ministerial positions, and we've had a bit more information about the the portfolios, the portfolio areas they're going to be covering. So um, it's still to be formally agreed. But but yeah, it looks likely that one of those will, will take responsibility for transport, housing and tenant rights. And then the other will will have responsibility for green skills, energy and industry and the natural environment. Um, obviously, <laughs> a few of these areas are particularly important ahead of COP26 happening in Glasgow in, in the coming weeks. And I mean, I, I guess the, the cooperation agreement in itself was a, a pretty significant symbolic move ahead of that but it looks like if, if they can come if the government can come out with some big policy announcements um in, in transport housing energy and industry in particular then that, that's going to be really really eye-catching ahead of cop yeah i mean jack do, do you think that uh, the, the deal with the greens you know potentially pushes the environment further up the agenda for for the scottish government ahead of ahead of cop yeah, I mean, on the face of it, it certainly looks that way, and, and that's an obvious plus for the SNP. You know, we're just a couple of months away from COP26, um, and we've had the kind of damning contents of the IPCC report, um, which really placed the focus on the summit in Glasgow and the UK more generally. Um, so we're now at this point where it's very much seen as, you know, the last chance to reduce emissions and, and slow global warming immediately, and because the science is kind of really saying progress is needed on that now. So if you consider that, you know, and the fact that the UK is under um, the microscope and you throw kind of Campbell into the mix and what's happening there, for the Scottish government to be engaging in what people seem to like calling grown-up politics, um, you know, tackling climate issues collaboratively, it seems to set a kind of different tone. So going forward, um, this issue becomes about more than the optics uh, and more about some of the commitments that are actually in the deal. So we're talking about you know increased investment and in active travel and public transport and strengthened support for marine renewables and offshore wind, investment and in energy efficiency um, and getting that done. Um, and I read a column from, from Caroline Lucas earlier and she said that kind of no one goes into politics to be in opposition forever. Um, but, you know, the challenge now facing the Scottish Greens is actually having that impact and influence while they're in government. And, and Jack, this uh, this week marked the SNP's uh, first 100 days in government since, since the election. Um, what, what did they promise and what have they managed to deliver on so far in those first 100 days? 
Yeah, I mean, there were a few different interpretations of the first 100 days and the timeline, weren't there? You know, we had, was it 100 days from the election, 100 days from the cabinet being announced? Um, the government has, has kind of gone with 100 days from the from when the first minister was voted in. So that's kind of cleared that up. Um, the SNP certainly seems to seems confident that they've met the commitments that were set out in May. I think there was about 80 of them. Um, some of the key ones, though, you know, were consulting on the creation of a national care service, publishing a recovery plan for the NHS, which you know we've seen recently, um, free NHS dental care for all those under 26, and then the opening of things like the Rapid Cancer Diagnostic Centres. Then obviously, um, you know, we've had the, the publishing of information relating to the, the COVID inquiry, um, which is kind of detailed that it should start by the end of the year, and it'll be a judge-led inquiry and we'll examine the four harms of COVID on health, non-COVID health impacts, societal impacts, and economic impacts. So there'll be no shortage of matters matters for that inquiry to cover. To cover, sorry, um, certainly as we've you know we've seen, um, you know, in the past few days with COVID and the state of the pandemic, it's become a, a major talking point again. Yeah, Margaret, I was going to ask about about that. I mean, we we've seen the COVID cases reach record levels this week, um, and there's even some some talk of a, a circuit breaker to to halt infections. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I guess it was kind of inevitable with the the easing of restrictions or the elimination of pretty much all restrictions coinciding with the, the return to schools. But um, on Wednesday this week, um, overnight, uh, the, the 24 hour new infection figures reached 5,000 for the first time, which when the restrictions were relaxed, I think it was, they were around about the 800 mark. So it's a huge mm. increase over that. Uh, well, it's not even two weeks yet. Um, so uh, Nicola Sturgeon made her an announcement earlier in the week that <laughs> we had to keep a close eye on things and uh, th- things things might happen in the near future. So the, the, the chat around that is, yeah, th- there could be a circuit breaker, which would be, a complete reversal of the the reverse freedom circuit breaker would be back to to full lockdown. I guess we're we're looking at things like homeschooling, etc. Again, but then there are there are other um, areas that might be looked at, like perhaps some new social distancing measures. Other, I guess, back into to some of the levels. So it, it, it's yet to be seen what will happen on that. But yeah. And then does does it look like does the big rise of infection? I mean, do, does that look like it's been driven in some part by the return to school? Do you think? I think so. Um, I mean, certainly the chat coming out of schools. I I know in the school that my own kids at, there's a lot of of kids being reported as having COVID. Um, I mean, I I guess it could be coincidental because all all the restrictions were lifted at the same time, but um, that'll definitely be playing a part. And I suppose in the coming weeks, when we see what happens when when the universities go back, whether I'm, I'm not quite certain if they're going back in person or not, or whether there's still going to be that kind of hybrid online learning, but that that could be another significant point for for, for looking at the numbers again. So you you as a parent presumably wouldn't uh, relish the prospect of a, another circuit breaker and a return to homeschooling on a temporary basis. I mean, I don't think teaching is quite my calling, and I, I don't think my son would be too happy about a return to homeschooling either. Yeah, I think there's a lot of parents out there that have a newfound appreciation for uh, the work that teachers do oh, um, over the past yeah. uh, year. Okay, that's great. Thank you both. And now Mandy Rhodes speaks to Yvonne Ridley. Yvonne, it's probably a mark of my age that, do you know, 
20 years since those photographs of you were on front pages and the news broke about you being captured by the Taliban. I mean, 20 years just seems ridiculous. It's gone by so quickly. Um, I can still remember a lot of it as though it was just yesterday. Um, but it, it's 20 years of, and, and here we are sort of full circle and now are on Taliban Mark Two. So for our younger readers, <laughs> everyone, just go back to that time 20 years ago. You were working mm-hmm. for The Express, a journalist, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and you'd, you'd smuggled your way basically into Afghanistan, hadn't you? Yes, I'd uh, gone undercover for an assignment for the Sunday Express. Uh, America and Britain was about to go to war in Afghanistan and I wanted to find out if the Taliban were as bad as people were making out because George Bush and Tony Blair told us that this was the most brutal, evil regime in the world. In fact, you know, when they came to power in the 90s, we had snapshots of of how brutal and evil they were on occasional foreign reports. but. Um, when the war was about to start, the propaganda, for want of a better description, was it was on steroids, you know. But, of course, you can't drop bombs on nice people, so you have to demonise the enemy first. When you talk about it like that, are you overlaying that with retrospect and hindsight as well? I mean, did you feel, as a journalist the way you're talking now, did you feel it was propaganda that was coming out and that it was your job to try and get through some of that? No, I, I had bought into the propaganda because, you know, I'm, I'm watching the scenes unfold on our television screens now and I look at the fear on people's faces and I recognise that fear because that is the fear that I had for 11 days, I thought, they're brutal, they're evil, they are going to kill me. And I did, the only thing that I didn't know was which day it was going to happen. Otherwise, you know, I had convinced myself. And this is the thing that I have since learned about propaganda is that um, a, a lot of it is manufactured up here. It's in the mind. And... Uh, I see it in Daily Mail readers all the time. You know, this constant um, telling people um, how to think. And it doesn't matter how subliminally it's done. Uh, People think of the Taliban now as a bunch of savages. And we will come back to that and how things changed, but... Going back to then, I mean, you were a very senior woman reporter on the Express. Was it irresponsible trying to smuggle your way into Afghanistan? But also, did you believe you were going in to show how bad these people were? And clearly there was no risk assessments going on at that time. Um, There were 3,000 journalists on the border of Pakistan waiting for the war to start. 
I wanted to get an exclusive that they couldn't. That was um, what was driving me, the byline. Um, vanity, I suppose, you know, just wanting to get a better story than anyone else. And I wanted to get ordinary Afghan views about the Taliban. And, I, I, you know, I wasn't going in to do some big style in-depth Guardian feature about um, a certain culture or group. Um, I wanted to do a, a shocking tabloid story, you know, read all about it inside the lair of the beast and all this sort of thing, you know how it goes. And that's that's what I was expecting to get. Because I guess that's the other thing is about... I mean, you and I have been around the block a bit in journalism, but it's painting the picture of who you were at that time. I mean, you described yourself as the Patsy Stone of uh, Fleet Street, didn't you? I mean, you were a hard-hitting tabloid journalist. Uh, yeah, uh, that description came from a colleague of mine. But uh, yes, um, I worked hard. I played hard. Um, I, I drank like a you know a fish and, and smoked like a trooper and and uh you know everything to excess and uh so i guess that um it was probably the also the atmosphere of um of the print media at that time you know it was um it was as though it was on steroids really it was uh, very combative very competitive and uh, things, you know, that we did, we'd, we'd never get away with today. And also part of that, I guess, in a war zone or a potential war zone at that time, there's something very seductive about that in terms of being a journalist, particularly at that time, wanting the story. I mean, did that mask perhaps some of the quite obvious risks that you were putting yourself in? Um, I, I was reckless looking back. Um, I was reckless and I remember hanging on the phone for my news editor, my poor long suffering news editor, who was called, uh, Jim Mad Dog Murphy. <laughs> and he, uh, he'd gone away and I, I was chatting to somebody. I said, why is he taking so long? And she said, oh, he's talking to the insurance company just to make sure that uh, you're covered. And, uh, you know, he's just making some final checks before they say whether you should go in or not. And I just thought, oh, they're going to come back with an answer I don't like. So I just cut off the phone and and um, and switched off my phone and, and wasn't available after that point. So what happened? Um, I, I went into Afghanistan with some guides. I was wearing the all-enveloping blue burqa. I got in and uh, was there for two days and was able to blow some myths, um, such as girls' schools. You know, girls' schools did exist. Girls were educated. I did speak to a young student who was training to be a doctor um, so th th those sort of things were, were um, I, I discovered. And then there was um, the Afghan women. Because I was a woman, I was able to engage with them. 
Um, otherwise, culturally, I, I wouldn't have been allowed anywhere near them if I'd been a male reporter. And these were women in the villages. And so I was able, through tr- a translator, to be able to talk to them and discovered, you know, that these women have more or less the same hopes and fears as women anywhere in the world. They want security, they want peace, they they want stability. And the other thing that I found uh, that was quite telling, they were totally mystified why America was going to bomb their country. Uh, because by this time, it was very much when the bombs start dropping, not if. And they just couldn't understand it. They didn't have television. Television was banned under the Taliban. And uh, they didn't have television. So they didn't see the images that we saw on that terrible day and subsequently for weeks afterwards, you know, the, those horrific images of people throwing themselves from the 21st floor and all, all of that. Um you mean from the and, Twin Towers? Yeah, from the Twin Towers, sorry, and, and the collapse of the Twin Towers. You know, they, they heard that something bad had happened in America and a lot of people had died, but they couldn't understand what, you know, one woman said, what has it got to do with us? And, you know, by that time we knew all the hijackers were Arabs and there were no Taliban on those planes. And it was, um, they, they were totally mystified why America was going to bomb their country. So when you're talking about this now, Yvonne, I mean, I presume you didn't pick up the phone again and say to Jim Mad Dog Murphy, actually, I've got a completely different story. And what becomes almost like a Guardian-esque cultural type uh-huh. story. I didn't get a chance. Um, my, but what would he have said, Yvonne? I mean, would the Express have taken that? Well, that's something we'll never know. It'll have to remain as one of life's imponderables. I suspect that they would have said um, they would have toned it down somewhat. I know when I came out and I wrote my story, and I described some of the Taliban as running up the mountainside like gazelles and some of them being incredibly handsome with these, you know, wild mane of hair and and uh, swarthy features. And I remember somebody saying, God, God, she's talking about the enemy here. We can't have this. <laughs> but it was... Um, uh, my final article, when it did get published, was reviewed by Anne Robinson, Queen of Acid, and she loved it. She said, you know, that she actually enjoyed reading this uh, this this alternative view of uh, these evil, brutal monsters who happened to run up mountainsides like gazelles and were quite handsome and swarthy. <laughs> so rolling back a bit then, so you you were captured after two days. Um, yes. Tell me about that. Tell me how that felt and, and oh. what kind of subsequently went on. Well, I, I needed to get back for my deadline and I was uh, complaining about walking uh, because I had these awful plastic Afghan shoes on. And so I 
we made the final part of the journey by donkey. And I was on this donkey and um, it, it was a mangy creature and, and it just bolted. Out of nowhere, it just bolted. And um, I was in this burqa and the faster it ran, the wind started flapping on the burqa and uh, making the thing run faster because, you know, the, the burqa was all over the place. And I screamed, flaming Nora, which I thought was rather restrained, by the way. Um, and nobody knew what I was saying. I'd just come out with this weird noise. Um, but as I tried to reach forward and, and rein in this wild donkey, a camera, the one piece of equipment that I had uh, taken into the country, swung out of the folds of my burqa into the view of a passing Taliban soldier. And uh, he saw the camera. Camera was, you know, also banned under the Taliban. Uh, not a lot of viewing or seeing was done <laughs> under the Taliban. And um, he, I think he either stopped the donkey or the donkey stopped and threw me off. I just remember going up in the air and landing down on the ground, picking myself up and uh, looking through the grill of the burqa and seeing this uh, this Afghan soldier, and I just thought, and it was only for a nanosecond, but I just thought, my God, you are gorgeous. <laughs> he, he had, you know, really, he had to be seen to be appreciated. He was the male version of the girl who was uh, captured on the front page of the National Geographic. With the beautiful blue eyes. Uh, green eyes. Green eyes, Really, yeah. you know, just absolutely stunning, sulky and wild. and, and uh, But it was only for a nanosecond. And then he started shouting at me, and I realised he wanted the camera, so I gave him the camera, and then I stood back and closed my eyes because I thought he's going to shoot me. And after about 10 seconds, which is a long time to wait to be shot, I opened my eyes and he'd gone off. He'd gone off to find out what man is in, in charge of this woman and why has she got a camera and it's his responsibility and his fault. And so he started looking for my guides. And at that point, I just thought, I, I can get away. He doesn't realise I'm a Westerner. So I turned and joined a group of people walking past. And, you know, there were three or four women at the back. And I thought, what's one more burqa? Nobody's going to. It's a wonderful gown for a, an investigative journalist. And so I joined this group. And we started to, you know, we continued walking towards the border and then I looked back, and by this time I saw that they'd got my two guides, the camera was being waved in their face, and a crowd had gathered round and lots of pushing and jostling. And I just thought, I can't leave them. And so I'm cursing myself, and I sort of turned round and walked back and tried to push through this crowd of men, and I was thrown back. This was nothing to do with a woman. Um, you know, this was man's business. So I 
tried again to get in and again I was thrown back and, and fell down, picked myself up and I just took my burqa off. I was wearing a shawl with kameez and I said, will somebody let me through? And suddenly everybody just froze and thought, where the hell has she come from? And it was like the parting of the sea, you know, and I walked through and went up to the soldier and demanded he give me my camera back. And I was hoping my great plan, (laughs) thinking on my feet, was that he'll be so happy to have got a Westerner, he'll completely forget about the guides and he'll take me. And I threw a quick look at my guides, thinking they would be looking back in admiration, you know, what a brave thing to do. And they were looking at me as if to say, you know what, we were in trouble. Now we're in serious trouble. So at that point, I realized that um, it was the worst possible thing that I could have done. And um, so we were all rounded up and and thrown into a a car and driven off to back to Jalalabad. So at what point were you thinking, actually, this is quite dangerous. I'm not going to meet my deadline, but also um, this is pretty dangerous now. Uh, Oh, I thought I was screwed. You know, I just thought this is the the end. And um, that's it. You know, I've had my last drink, my last cigarette. I've just, that is it. I'm never going to see my daughter again. Um, I wonder if they find out. I wonder if they ever find my body, you know, just lots of different. I was convinced that I was going to die. Just as convinced as those people in the airport, you know, queuing, just say, if I don't get on a plane, I am going to die. You know, that fear is is very, very real. And you were you were kept for what 10 11 days 11 days and during that time I mean tell me about how you were treated at what point did you move from thinking I'm gonna die to oh actually I'm not gonna die but what happens next um I thought uh that I was going to die right up until the point where they took me in a people carrier to the Pakistan border and opened the door and said, uh, you're free to go. And I didn't even believe them then. I came out of the people carrier backwards because I didn't want to lose sight of them because I thought as soon as I turn my back, they're going to shoot me in the back. And so I got out and, and walked backwards and then turned and walked very quickly <laughs> towards um, the Pakistan border And as I walked across, I could hear the Pakistan journalists, because the Western media weren't there at the time, I could hear the Pakistan journalists shouting, how are you? How did the Taliban treat you? And I thought as I'm walking towards them, gosh, you know, they treated me quite well. And I was so rude to them. And I almost wanted to stop and turn back and say, I am so sorry, but, you know, I was under a lot of stress. But I thought if I turn around and walk back, they'll say, oh, my God, she's coming back. Shoot her. So, um, you know, I have to laugh when 
people say, oh, Yvonne Ridley, yeah, Stockholm Syndrome, because I did not bond with my captors at all. They did not bond with me. There was mutual distrust and loathing. And there were several times during the interrogations where they were so appalled by my behaviour, they had to get up and walk out. They just didn't want to be in the same room as me. Fighting the Taliban, Yvonne. I mean, I um, you you mentioned Stockholm Syndrome. You probably knew mm-hmm. that I was going to ask you about that. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the obvious conclusion, I guess, for mm-hmm. all of us. We listen to your story. We know we hear about the Taliban, and yet you. I mean, we'll come on to this, but obviously, during the course of that um, imprisonment, if you like, um, you got a very different view of them. You made a promise to study the Quran, mm-hmm. you've converted to Islam. I mean, I just, you know, it, what do you think happened to you? In well, um, I, as I say, I genuinely thought I wouldn't survive the experience. I got out. I did, they did ask, um, invite me to embrace Islam. And I said I couldn't make such a life-changing decision in prison. But if they let me go, you know, I said, I promise I'll read your book and, and study the Quran. And, you know, when, if you ever have the misfortune to become a prisoner, you tend to count things, you tend to, really observe things because there's nothing else to do you know two flies going up a wall is entertainment in a prison cell so um i noticed gosh these people are praying five times a day i had no idea that the five prayers a day were obligatory then i saw the way they ate uh the way they dressed um, the way they behaved themselves, you know, everything seemed to be driven by Islam. If they entered a room, they would say this word, Bismillah. Before they took some food, they would say Bismillah. And, and various other words, you know, that were obviously in a religious context were were said at every opportunity. And I just thought as a journalist covering the Middle East and Asia, how on earth can I write with any authority if I don't know anything about Islam. And when I got back um, and I was telling people about my experiences, um, what had happened during those 11 days was a complete clash of culture. They didn't understand me. I didn't understand them. Um, They never looked at me during the interrogations. You know, in the Hollywood movies, we see the person being slapped around and then the focus, tell me the truth. Um, These lot came in, didn't touch me, and they were looking at the ceiling, they were looking at the floor, they were looking everywhere but at me to say, what is this, what is that? And, and, you know, and I, I just thought they can't even look me in the face because they know they're going to kill me. They feel so guilty. 20 years down the line... I'm reading a report from another journalist who interviewed Sahail Shaheen, one of the Taliban spokesmen, and she said, oh, he was it was really creepy and weird. He couldn't even look me in the eye. He avoided my glance at every opportunity. And I thought, that was me 20 years ago. Western arrogance, Western ignorance, 
and not understanding um, the culture. So why so, wasn't he looking at you? Um, out of respect. Right. Um, it's They avert their gaze. I mean, the, 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 the Taliban are quite puritanical and conservative with a small c, and they, um, they're very sort of, um, yeah, I would say puritanical. I remember uh, washing my clothes when I got a change of clothes. Uh, I was able to wash my other clothes, and I hung my washing out to dry in prison in Kabul, and it was a woman's prison. And among the items that I hung on the washing line uh, were my knickers. And, you know, we're not talking small, lacy items. We're talking uh, big, practical Bridget Jones underwear um, on the line. And the prison governor came to see me and he told me to remove them from the washing line. And I said, no. And, you know, I'm still sort of in prisoner of hell mode. And he said that they had to come down. And I said, if you don't like them, you take them down. And he, you know, was almost exploding on the spot. And off he went. And he returned with the Afghan foreign minister. I couldn't believe it. I thought this man should be involved in shuttle diplomacy between Washington, London, Islamabad, Kabul. And here he is telling me to take my knickers off the washing line. And he said, Madam Ridley, you must remove them. And I said, why? And he said, if our soldiers see those items, they'll have impure thoughts. So I'm looking at these big black flappy knickers with a newfound respect, thinking impure thoughts, gosh. Um and it made me laugh. Um, and, and, uh, and I said, there is a solution to the problem. And he threw his arms in the air in relief and said, I knew you were a reasonable woman. He said, what is it? I said, tell your soldiers not to look out of the window into the female courtyard. And, of course, this wasn't a solution at all as far as he was concerned. And so the day before the war started, I had the Afghan foreign minister, the equivalent of Jack Straw, telling me that I had to remove my um, underwear from the washing line. And by the time the argument finished, it was immaterial anyway because they dried in the, uh, in the sun. So it was, um, as I say, that sort of thing. Uh, and I just thought, you know, uh, the <laughs> looking back, the Americans have spent $2 trillion trying to beat the Taliban. All they need do was get a platoon of women waving their underwear and they would have run like hell. I mean, you know, you look back on it now and you can, you've got humour about it and everything else. Mm -hmm. But I guess, you know, what do you think the Yvonne Ridley of 20 years ago, had she been interviewing a woman telling the story that you're just telling, would have made of that? I, I would be wondering, um, well, it's bizarre really because 
you've you've got um, these women, and I've spoken to all sorts of Afghan women over the last couple of weeks, and you've got these women who are really very scared at the prospect of a Taliban government. You've got other women saying, this is the end, you know, we're going back to the dark ages. Then you've got other Afghan women who are saying, thank God, that corrupt government is gone. Um, maybe this new government will change our lives. Um, and then you've got the, well, the the ones that I've spoken to in the countryside who um, are cautiously welcoming the Taliban, and it, it's it's really really quite quite strange um, that you've got all these equally strong strident views. I suppose what I'm trying to say is that. When you went in 20 years ago, maybe life was a bit more black and white. And mm-hmm. had you had you been Yvonne Ridley, the tabloid journalist, interviewing a woman, a Westerner, that was saying, well, yeah, I was in prison for 11 days by the Taliban, but actually I've got a quite healthy respect for them now. Would you, as Yvonne Ridley, the tabloid journalist, have written a story that was saying, this is all very interesting. Or would you have been quite sceptical and worried about where she had gone in her head with all of this? Uh, I would have just thought, you know, she's had a breakdown or Stockholm Syndrome. I would try and find a reason for this. Um, the conversion to Islam is quite easy to explain because, uh, you know, as journalists... We don't talk about religion um, in the office or religion that's personal to us. And I was a practicing Christian. Now, very few of my colleagues knew that. And I would go to St. James's Church in Piccadilly on a Sunday and uh, I'd maybe go twice a month, which, let's face it, is bordering on fanaticism um, in this country. And so, I, you know, I had this common belief or this core belief in God. And then I started reading the Quran and it's actually a lot of the passages are very biblical. So it was easy for me to sort of cut through that and understand the Quran. And I started focusing on women's rights within the Quran. And as I say, two years later, I ended up um, embracing Islam, and uh, some people were delighted. Um, some people weren't because I challenged them on women's rights. And if the Taliban are true to Islam and uh, do respect women's rights, then we should see women in government. We should see women in heads of departments. We should see women standing shoulder to shoulder with them in all levels of um, Afghan life. But that clearly wasn't happening before. No. Do you think we have every right to wonder whether this is a new kind of Taliban? I mean, do, can you understand why women might be frightened? Yes. Yes, I can. And I would, um, I would say uh, to the West, 
um, either stand back, don't interfere, don't meddle, or if you're going to do something, um, do it with aid, with humanitarian support, um, give them as much support as you can. If the West isolates them and and uh, and withdraws funding and uh, continues with sanctions, um, that will hurt the Afghan people. But also what I would say is although some women are not unreasonably saying our liberties, our freedoms will go, what I would say to them is come on, the bar for your liberties and freedom is so low at the moment. And what I would say is why is it that only 2% of Afghan women um, have any chance of getting to university? Why are 84% of Afghan women um, unable to read and write? You know, what? for 20 years, the West, the US, Britain, NATO forces, all this money that's come tumbling into Afghanistan, and what have they managed? They've managed um, to make life easier for a few privileged elite living in Kabul, living in Kandahar, living in the major cities. The working class women, the peasant class women, the women that I'm interested in, their lives haven't improved one iota. There's nearly four million children that will never get an education at the moment or that have gone for the last few years without an education. And so you wonder, you know, all this talk about freedoms and liberties, it, it's for a few privileged elite and the bar is set very low. They have this thing called a virginity test. And if you are involved in a court case, whether you are the victim, the perpetrator, um, a witness, you have to undergo a virginity test, which has absolutely no legal bearing on any case anyway. What sort of freedom and liberty is that? Then there's the forced marriages, the culture, which isn't religion, it, it's culture. There's a very tough culture and there's forced marriages. And I'm thinking of the story of one young girl called Lal Bibi, who is uh, 17 and she, she, well, she's now 17 and she lives in a, a place near the uh, Tajikistan border uh, called Fariam. And she was forced into a marriage with a brute of a man and uh, he, both he and her father-in-law beat her, burned her, and pulled out her fingernails. And then after all this brutalization, she's near to death. They contacted her father and said, come and get her. She's of no use to us. And the father was appalled when he saw the state of his uh, young daughter, who should have been at school. But, you know, school is only available in certain areas. And uh, this isn't a Taliban-controlled area, by the way. This is under the Ashraf Ghani government. And she, um, her injuries were so bad, she ha they, the local hospital couldn't deal with her. Uh, she's now, I think, in Kabul and is learning to walk again. 
and the local police went round and arrested the f- father-in-law and her husband. So you think, great, she's going to get justice. The local warlord and the local thugs went round to the police station and said, if you don't release the uh, the men, uh, we're going to burn down the police station. And so they released the men who then went running off and sought sanctuary in some Taliban-controlled area. This was last year. And I just thought, you know, um, if the Taliban is genuine about women's rights, start off and do something about Lal Bibi's husband and father-in-law and let's get justice for her. And, but, but and so the argument there? Yvonne, the, the things argument, will get worse or better well, the, the by us not being there? Uh, um, well, things, th- things aren't good to start off with because there are thousands of girls like Lal Bibi who are in abusive um, marriages who are, are being abused. You know, in the world, suicide rates have one trend – and that is the majority of suicides committed in the world today, everywhere in the world, the majority of those uh, victims are men, apart from one country, and that's Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, there are 3,000 attempted um, and suicides every year, and of 80% of those, they're from women. And those are just the figures we know about because it's a very taboo subject. So when I hear somebody saying our rights are going to be taken away from us and we're going to end up in the Stone Age, I say, where were you when Lal Bibi was being abused, when all the the virginity tests were being forced on women, um, the suicide attempts, the forced marriages? Obviously, all these things take time. I know it takes time to filter down And usually things like (coughs) education do trickle down and eventually do get to the villages. But let's not pretend that women's rights in Afghanistan are wonderful. The the national football team has just been um, evacuated from Afghanistan, Uh, the girls' football team. Those girls were sexually abused by um, the uh, one of the senior uh, managers. And they, um, the, they're brave girls. They actually brought it to light. And then uh, FIFA expelled this man and, uh, and he um, was facing various charges, but he was never arrested under the Ashraf Ghani government. I mean, you know, so let's not get all misty-eyed about women's rights have gone because women's rights had barely got off their knees in 20 years of Western influence, Western occupation, and and, uh, trillions of of dollars. Um, So so what do you see, Yvonne, as as the future? I mean, clearly right now there's a crisis mm. as people are trying to get out, Mm -hmm. and whether it's because... They're believing propaganda, as you might think mm-hmm. about some things. But, I mean, things are not good right now. I mean, do you think we've handled it badly? And how do you think things could improve? 
We have handled it badly um, from start to finish. We, you know, how many corrupt governments are we going to support? And why is it that, you know, the governments that we bring to power are, are all so corrupt? You know, the, 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 there's a trend here and, and um, we have to, you know, look at our nation building abilities and, and um, you know, are we doing the best things? A lot of people got very, very rich out of the American occupation, predominantly Americans, the American security services, the private contractors, um, all the schools that were built, um, the majority of them provided jobs for outsiders coming in. The occupation generated very few jobs other than in security and intelligence and, and um, you know, the translators that we're hearing about. Um, we're not nation builders. And, and so, you know, we, we ought to really re-examine our foreign policy, not just in the West. I think the United Nations has to um, get involved and we've got to have a bar. It's no use uh, having the Boris Johnson government turn around and say, oh, these people, uh, they don't recognize women's human rights. And then, oh, right, we've got a, a meeting now selling weapons to uh, the Saudi um, government. You know, there's a disparity here. We really need to start looking at an ethical foreign policy. And I, just to, to roll back, because, I mean, there's such so many other bits to your story. But, I mean, did that being captured by the Taliban change you? Did, did it make you more political? Did it wake you up to things that you weren't aware of before? Yes. Or were yes, you ready for the change anyway? No, no. I, I was quite happy with my life. You know, I was quite happy um, drinking myself to oblivion and, and smoking 40 cigarettes a day. Um, I wasn't looking for a lifestyle change at all. Um, but it happened. And I became more focused. I became... Um, more aware of the injustices around the world. And I became more involved in humanitarian um, causes and women's rights. And, you know, my heart breaks when I look at the way women from Syria, women in the Rohingya camps um, in Bangladesh, uh, are being abused and, and are having no life. I look at Iraq and, you know, I used to visit Iraq before the war and it was um, under sanctions then. But women were very prominent on the political landscape. Uh, girls were educated up to university. The literacy rates were extremely high. Um, education was highly prized and highly valued in Iraq. And now um, two generations have, have just lost out 
on education and the country is is going backwards and it it's so sad to see um and this was all triggered by a, a war from the west you know we really really need to start engaging in ethical foreign policies and and we're not doing it i think sweden is um looking at a, a feminist foreign policy and where you get governments where there's a high proportion of women they're less likely to endorse wars well on that note on that note i guess and that we'll skim very quickly over this given how much we've talked but i'm sure we'll, you'll be back on here is you did become involved politically so you became mm. involved in um, respect mm-hmm. um, and stood for respect uh, unsuccessfully. Mm-hmm. Um, moved to Scotland. Have tried to stand for the SNP. Mm-hmm. Have you become disillusioned by what happens with politics and politicians? I have, in some ways. Um, you know, I was a big, big cheerleader for the SNP. I'm very. Uh, I moved to Scotland because I wanted independence. Um, I've spent nearly 20 years watching the mire, the swamp that is Westminster and the corruption and and the, you know. um, And when I heard about independence in Scotland, I just thought, oh, yes, I'd, I'd love some of that. And so I moved up to Scotland Um the way for us to get independence, the way forward is through people power. Uh, too many people are relying on political parties. You can't rely on politicians. And um, people have to lead this. And I think that movements like All Under One Banner um, will uh, will succeed where, you know, quite frankly, the SNP is failing at the moment. Um, it's failed to, to deliver um, a date or um, anything. There's nothing on the horizon for um, an independence referendum. The polls have all been in favour. Um, now they're on, in the decline again because people are just beginning to become disillusioned again. Um, great things happen when people start moving. We can't rely on the politicians. Um, they're a waste of space. People power gets things moving. And when the people move, the leaders will have to keep up with them or they will become irrelevant. And um, so I'm more, I think, I, I, I think I've, <laughs> I've become a revolutionary in my old age. And, and you know, we will get independence in this country. This country is a fantastic country and it punches well above its weight. And I, I really have high hopes um, that we will get independence.
as someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and do tell your friends because everybody has an interest in politics. 